Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. today's episode, we had the opportunity to sit down with a real legend in transplantation. Dr. Paul Gregg is a transplant surgeon who worked for over 30 years at the Toronto General Hospital. We talked to him about what it was like to set up a transplant program and to get his insights into residency and education. Sorry for the audio quality in this episode, but there's some real wisdom to glean here from Dr. Gregg. We hope you enjoy. Dr. Greg, um, I've had the opportunity to talk to many of your trainees in re- and residents who are my friends. And, and normally we start the so podcast don't, by... Don't, don't believe everything you say. <laughs> um, and, but what's clear from talking to them is that, because like, normally we start the podcast by talking about a clinical topic or reviewing a paper, but it's, it's clear that we have to talk to you about your career first as a transplant surgeon. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you did your training, and how you ended up uh, in Toronto. And then the, sort of the second part of that is why why liver transplantation? Yeah, sure. So I'm a Toronto guy. I was born here in Toronto, did um, 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 uh, public school education in Toronto. I actually did my undergraduate at the University of Waterloo in math and computers. as a co-op part, uh, um, um, uh, student um, uh, at Waterloo. Um, all, all along the way, I played in some bands, um, and, then, and then I... When I finished Waterloo, I played in a prog rock band for about a year and a half. And my girlfriend at the time didn't want me to be a computer programmer. She wanted me to be a doctor, so I applied to med school, and uh, uh, I got in. Uh, Toronto was the only med school that accepted me, so I went to the University of Toronto, did my medicine here, and um, um, was influenced. And then we're going to talk about languor and stuff like that. I got attracted to surgery. I did my residency, uh, the Yali program in general surgery here in Toronto. I finished that in 1981. I went to New York. I did two years of uh, research fellowship at Columbia uh, Presbyterian Hospital uh, in Manhattan, um, the best week of my life, and came back on staff uh, as, uh, I guess what they call it, a surgeon at the time in 1984, and um, um, so that's my background. Yeah, so so um, so I, I, I took an interest in um, uh, liver disease and the diseases of, um, uh, and, 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 and liver surgery from, from Bernie Langer, the question is heavily influential guy in my life. Basically, um, he just challenged me more than anybody else had challenged me. I just dug what he did. And I had done some research uh, with him along the way, uh, um, studying a device called the Levine peritoneal venous shunt that reinfused the acidic fluid through a plastic tube with a one-way valve back into the central vein so people peed it out. Got some publications out of that during my residency. So I was headed towards a, 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 a a life in liver surgery, 
Quite frankly, I came back on staff uh, at the Toronto General Hospital in 1984, and I expected to do political shunts and ripple operations for a living because that's what this uh, sort of emerging specialty of liver surgeons were doing. Um, but lo and behold, guess what happened? We started injecting varices with glue and then banding them, and so the shunt went uh, by the wayside. At the same time, um, Langer had started our uh, fellowship um, in, uh, in uh, liver surgery, and Leonard McCalco was one of our first fellows. And Leonard and, and Bernie had become aware that liver transplantation was starting to become successful down in Pittsburgh. This guy, Starzl, was, uh, was transplanting the liver, and they weren't all dying. Some of them were now surviving, and the plan was that Leonard was going to go down to Pittsburgh and learn how to deliver transplants and come back. Um, but while he was a fellow, Bernie said, well, why don't you and Leonard start transplanting some pigs? So we went over to the lab and we started transplanting pigs and we got the perfusionists to come over and show and help us do venous bypass. We put pigs to sleep and we transplanted pigs and, and, and developed those techniques. And, uh, and uh, Leonard uh, left uh, in July of 84 to Pittsburgh. And later on that year, I guess it was 85, later that year, Bernie decided that we were probably ready to start to do liver transplantation. We had done enough in the lab and that uh, we had a critical uh, mass of liver surgeons, you know, Langer, Taylor, um, Steve Strasberg, uh, myself. And, um, and we did our first transplants in 1985. Did a couple more in 1986 and then 1987. He said, well, that's enough for me, Paul. Why don't you take it from here? So there I was, a brand new surgeon on staff with an outstanding opportunity. And that's when they started doing liver transplantation. That's how it happened. Like, oh, along the way, along the way, um, in 1986, I did go down to Pittsburgh. I went down for a week. Because Leonard was still there as the fellow, and he sort of made sure that I was well taken care of, and I saw I saw like six transplants in five days. And I actually scrubbed the Tom Stars on a Bud Carey transplant on the last day. So that's actually my formal training in transplantation was five days in Pittsburgh, um, and uh, of course I had the the benefit of of, of the mentorship of Bernie Langer, Bryce Taylor, and Steve Strasberg, and, and uh, so my my you know forerunners. So that's how I became a transplant surgeon. And the kind of stuff came on, passed on as part of all of that. That's an unbelievable story. Yeah. <laughs> really interesting. Right <laughs> um, place at the right time, man. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's really cool. I, I, I consider myself a second-generation hepatobiliary surgeon, but I'm really a first-generation transplanter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, it was interesting. I, of course, when, when you gave the, the Bill Wall presidential address or, um, for the CHPBA, um, you know, you were referred to in the introduction as as a as a 1.5, and that, that's exactly where that comes from, eh? 1.2.0. Yeah, it was great. Um, in in the Canadian Journal of Surgery, you published a couple of really interesting vignettes or or stories, really about Dr. Langer that you've touched on, and 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 Tom Starzl that you've touched on as well. How did those guys? How did they not impact your sort of outlook on your career outside of the? Of the actual technique of, of liver transplantation and of HPV surgery. And I'm also curious, um, if you're willing to talk about it, how Bill Wall may or may not have influenced both yourself as well as the, the Toronto program in general coming out of London. 
great questions. Um, so um, I've already alluded to the fact that, that <clears throat> I was going to be a thoracic surgeon, and then I met Bernie Langer. He just challenged me more than anybody else. And <clears throat> in his way and in his mannerisms and everything, he, he basically said, let's see you be this good, Paul. He challenged me more than anybody else ever did. I think that's part of the culture of the Toronto General Hospital. There is a lot of pressure uh, to be um, excellent. And there's pressure to be excellent in every hospital. I understand that. And maybe I'm overstating it because it's the only place I've known. But Bernie did that in space and he made what he was doing just more challenging than anything else. And, 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 and Bernie had a couple of statements. If you don't stand tall enough, you can't see far enough. And he clearly was a visionary sort of guy, transformative toward the vision of general surgery, our department of surgery. He started the liver transport program because he thought he could. And, and, and he, he showed me that, that, that indeed you need to challenge yourself and, and take these things on, uh, just sort of created a, a, an atmosphere of excellence uh, that, that we all emulated, you know, and we all, we all uh, um, um, sort of aspired to. Um, so so that's probably the influence that he had on me, of course, the, the technical aspects. I, I operate halfway between Bryce Taylor and Bernie Langer. Those are the two guys who influenced my surgical decision-making and my, uh, my technical skills. Um, but Bernie... Um, um, it just established a, a standard, a, 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 a standard of care of, of excellence that um, we all aspire to. So that's that's how he affected me. I would have to say I didn't know Tom Starzl particularly well. Um, I'm not sure he would have known me if we'd seen each other in the, in the hallways. Um, but he showed me, um, um, you know, what could be done. You know, as you know, he was such a pioneer and a maverick, um, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And, uh, and uh, although I personally have not been that creative in my, my you know, surgical career, clearly he was the guy who showed us um, that uh, if you're uh, determined to make something work, you can make it work. And he, he made the best of all of his successes. He had lots of failures along the way, but he had enough successes to to, to encourage him along uh, to, to make this thing work, and that's why we transplant the liver today. So those are the two people um, who, who influenced me along the way. As I said, Bryce Taylor was an important factor as well. Talking about your early career setting up the Toronto Liver Program, I mean, now it's, it's a well-renowned, world-renowned, really, program uh, in liver transplantation. Uh, but... Looking back, what do you think were the r- r- critical steps in creating the program, and what were your most challenging struggles um, in setting that up? And and uh, and uh, you know, in talking to some of your residents, it seems like this there's a lot of synergy between the liver transplant program as well as the uh, lung transplant program. And, and how do you think that all played out? So the liver transplant program first, then I'll talk about the relationship with the lung. So the liver transplant, but Bernie, Bernie really developed it in, in the early days. And I think one of the um, really smart moves initially was to invite every surgeon who dabbled with the liver in Toronto to come and be part of the liver transplant program if they wanted. 
Birmingham was a big city. He saw that Chicago already had three programs. New York had two. You know, I'm going to have two more programs. And and in in the Toronto area, Central University, all that business. He 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 went out of his way to make sure that everyone at the other hospitals at Sunnybrook and and uh, the Wellesley Hospital at the time and St. Mike's and the Western Everest and Mount Sinai, everybody was invited to come and participate. And so what that, what that establishes is, is a single program rather than a fractious two or three programs all fighting uh, uh, against each other uh, for turf uh, in the transplant world. So that was, that, that, that was smart. And then, then he... Then he the, the next battle the, 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 to fight, frankly, was the resources of the hospital. You know, um, for anesthesia, this is all-night work that is really hard, and no one loves doing that, you know. And there's, uh, it, 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 it was technically challenging for them. These patients were unstable. And it was, it was not really easy to develop a cadre of anesthetists who were interested in this. After all, they all wanted to do the cardiac cases and not, not the liver cases. You need to know, by the way, that we now have uh, three and sometimes four uh, liver transplant anesthesia, you know, liver anesthesia fellows now. It's, re it's really, like, totally changed many years later. But it, was, it, it took us a while to develop a, a, a cadre of younger anesthetists uh, who took an interest in this um, um, because, quite frankly, we get a different anesthetist uh, each night. And when you're only doing a transplant every week or two, um, uh, it, it took a while for anesthetists to develop that expertise. It was a bit of a challenge in the time. It was also you know, <clears throat> a personal challenge to enthuse them and try to, you know, um, uh, sort of and, 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 and maintain a, 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 a positive spin on transplantation. You know, speaking of the anesthetist, that you want to get going at three in the morning, please, because the liver will be here at two, and we have to get on with things. And that wasn't really easy. And the next is the, is the resources of the hospital, and and because it's ICU dependent, it's uh, um, uh, um, uh, and and uh, to do that, uh, we eventually. I guess this was more burning as, as much as anyone else. We developed the multi-organ transplant program because we realized that as individual programs, heart, lung, liver, kidney, none of us are going to have the critical mass to be influential in the hospital. But if you bring it all together and put it under a single umbrella, then that has a cachet. And that worked very well. And so, so the transplant program has, has, has really grown and, 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 and blossomed nicely as a priority for the hospital. So those sort of logistical things uh, were important. Um, and, and frankly, I, 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 I have to say, there's a lot of grunt work. You know, for the first five years, we didn't have any coordinators. You know, there was a phone call that there was a liver up in Ottawa. I would spend the next uh, 45 minutes on the phone uh, calling in the, the, the anesthetists and the expert nurses and the blood bank tech and, uh, and the uh, coagulation tech and calling in the patients and calling another patient to that patient they want to go, and, and, and the more program to make sure the airplane was going. And as we're, as we're driving down um, to, to, run, uh, to, to, to do the donor, we're getting another phone call that, uh, that uh, there's another uh, it, it, it was a lot of personal time until we had individuals who would help us with the coordination of all of this. Um, that, that was a lot of personal time. And there's one other thing. The first, I think it was first seven liver transplants 
uh, Gary Levy and I took turns uh, sleeping in the bed across the way from that patient overnight for the first two or four days just to make sure that they were okay. We had intense post-operative care thing and they were committed to medicating. And so, so there was a staff surgeon or a staff hepatologist uh, who was sleeping beside the patient for the first couple of days. I do credit needs to be given to uh, Gary Levin because a transplant program is very dependent on its hepatologist. That's where the patients come from. And, 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 and Gary had done some training in transplantation in Pittsburgh with David Valtier and came back uh, actually to some of initially before he moved um, downtown. And Gary was really driven to develop a transplant program. So the combination of motivated surgeons and a particularly motivated hepatologist it's quite successful in developing a program. Um, Dr. Greg, you know, your your name and your, I should say your good name <laughs> certainly is uh, synonymous with a lot of really, really, really uh, amazing things. But one of them is clearly the, the the world that surrounds education or surgical education. And as Amir sort of touched on, um, whether we're talking to, you know, your former residents, your current residents, nationally, internationally, fellows, fellows, whether I'm sitting in a room quietly listening to your sage advice at the, at the HPBA uh, committee meetings, um, really, when I think of surgical education, honestly, I think of you. And unlike a, maybe a 1.5 transplant surgeon, I think you're a 1.0 surgical educator. So our, our questions really surround uh, advice that you would have uh, for for residents in surgical training, for HPB fellows or fellows in general. Um, how do you how do you frame surgical education? What do you tell your trainees? Um, you know, I benefited personally from a lot of your advice from medical school forward. Whether whether you remember it or not, it's another question. And then I guess finally, what what do you think of of the shift to competency by design? Does that have any implications, good or bad, in, from your point of view? Yeah, so don't let me forget to, uh, to, to do the last question um, for the CPD thing. Uh, I think that, that I might forget if, if I just get rattling on. You bet. So, so, um, the residency has changed without question. The residents are much more empowered um, uh, over the past few decades than before, and that's probably a good thing. They're much more aware of uh, their situation, um, a much less blind faith, oh, I, if I'm supposed to do that, then that's what we do, um, because that's the way it's always been done, that traditionalist. Um, and they are more challenging of, of um, um, uh, more traditional methods, and that is probably a good thing. Uh, there's clearly more camaraderie within the residency. I, Really didn't know the other ten residents in my in my year. We 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 never saw each other. You know, we were busy being doctors. That clearly has changed, and 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 um, residency education is much more formalized than it was. And I think what that does is it very basically guarantees that you're going to be able to pass the written and the oral exam. The challenge, I think, for residents these days is to get the adequate um, clinical training. They're very protected um, from themselves, uh, from spending too many hours in the hospital, um, uh, and they're protected from uh, individuals who would, would uh, um, 
uh, ask too much of them. Um, but I, 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 and at the same time, um, the, the, the knowledge base uh, is probably easier than it was before because um, the resources, it's all on your phone. You can look stuff up. CAT scans are done. Um, um, if you've got a good radiologist, they'll tell you what's going on, although my advice to the residents is you better be good at reading the x-rays, although you don't test you on that. It just makes you a better doctor. But the technical aspect on the surgical side, I think, is a real... Is a real is an ongoing challenge from our for our residents, and we certainly recognize that uh, during the first year of the fellowship, there's a much steeper learning curve now than there was in the past. You know, our residents have not the open operative experience that we used to have 10, 20 years ago. Doctor Fault is just the way it is, and so my encourage and and they have to master both open and laparoscopic techniques and. Probably have to learn how to do it on a robot as well. So that's that's a real challenge uh, for them to get all of that, and that's just a time thing. You got to do one and another, like lots of them. And so, and and I I think our real challenge going forward is to get enough open surgery on. That's my bias, of course. I, I think there'll still be a role for open surgery um, for trauma transplant. The liver won't fit through the laparoscopic port. So there still is a important role for open surgery. And it may become a subspecialty someday. Uh, who knows uh, where that's going. But that, that, that's my challenge. And, and so my advice to the resident is, is, is jump on every opportunity uh, to, be, to use your hands and be comfortable with handling tissues because it's all about handling tissues and seeing planes. Anyone can cut it, you know, but you have to know how hard you can pull, how, you know, and when you see, that's where I should go. There's, Translation to, to laparoscopic surgery as well, but but, but but just I've been doing some work with my brother on my car, and metal is a lot harder than tissue. And I said he's got this expertise; he knows how hard he can bang that the fender, and I don't, you know. But I know how hard I can bang a liver, you know. It's all about these subtle things that you learn. So that's not my, my advice to residents. And of course, like the residents, the only part is, is, is prepares you for your fellowship. And my advice to fellowship, to, to, to fellows is, is, is capitalize on every opportunity you can. And I, my, cause, cause you will end up operating, uh, the way your last, uh, mentor taught you. And, and, um, uh, during your fellowship, uh, uh, you need to have your antennae, uh, uh well, um, um, uh, positioned so that you recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of each of your teachers. You're going to have some in the operating room who are really good and teach you well, and there's going to, there's going to be others who challenge you more, and frankly, they'll be the ones that, that you'll probably learn more from if they don't help you as much as the others do. And you'll get something for, from everyone. Now, the current generation is very good at soliciting and seeking feedback, and, 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 and it's important to get that, but you can't get that every time, and so you need to, to be introspective and take advantage of every opportunity. And like I said, recognize the strengths of each of the different teachers, because they'll all be different. Um, uh, at the Toronto General Hospital, we have seven of us who, you know, who, who teach liver transplants, and, and we, we, we have different styles all similar stuff, but but in each of them will 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 um, uh, uh, 
impart different values and make different uh, emphasis on different parts of the operation. And that's what the fellowship is all about, is synthesizing all that stuff. So that's, that's, that, that, that's my advice to fellows. Um, with regards to CPD, uh, this, this is just uh, the educators, not the teachers, but the educators next kick, kick at the cat. I'll fully acknowledge that we don't do evaluation well. We certainly don't do it very objectively. Subjectively, we're all pretty good at finding the good surgeon. And the challenge, of course, is to help the struggling individual. I think we should come to recognize that not everyone can be a surgeon. And they start out being that way. Not everyone who gets into HPV fellowship is destined to be an HPV fellow. And I think we need to acknowledge that, although that's a real challenge, too. And there's a couple of my challenges during my, uh, my, during my, during my career. But CPD is, is um, well, the administrator's attempt to improve on our ability to evaluate. Um, it, it, it adds more structure to the evaluations. We went through structured evaluation tests, OSETs, and the, OSA, the, the Ottawa score and all these things, and, and they've been adopted by different, to different extents by different programs. And CPD, I see, is being similar to that with these milestone things. It's, it, 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 it's trying to get the surgeons to more objectively evaluate and give feedback to the trainees. Part of the problem is you get what you pay for. And none of the surgeons are really paid to do this. You know, and they're busy individuals. And so, and so it's, it's, we'll see if it makes much of a difference. It, uh, it, it, it's, it's, you know, instead of a CanMed's competencies, which was the uh, a tool of, of of the decade, like you know, the previous decade, now with CPD, we'll see, we'll see where it takes us. Um, um, part of the problem, and I, part of the problem with CPD is it tries to compartmentalize many of the things we do, and life isn't like that. You know, you're starting off thinking this is appendicitis, and you end up. Uh, up to your eyeballs, uh, uh, taking out the sigmoid colon because uh, you know, you know it's, things things are are not that tidy in in life, um, and so uh, there's there's going to be some limitations to it, but it just acknowledges that we're still struggling with our abilities to effectively uh, give feedback and and help the struggling student. Those are my thoughts. Those are some really sage and. Uh, really deeply wise comments on um, some real challenges for our generation. A lot to think about. Um, I I think we'd be remiss to not ask you, uh, like we were talking about before we started recording, about some of your passions outside of uh, medicine. I've heard that you're not only just a phenomenal musician, uh, but also a dedicated gamer. Can you tell us a little bit about those <laughs> outside interests that you developed outside of medicine? And how did you do that as a, a person who was sleeping beside the patient uh, <laughs> 50% of the time? So um, I became addicted to World of Warcraft through my sons because they were uh, a, a serious gamers. In fact, one of my sons took a year off to play World of Warcraft. And it was either... 
invite them or join them, and I did the latter so that when I came home, uh, Kevin would say to me, hey, Dell, I got your guy some new armor. I just sent it to you. So it's a way to relate to my children. Uh, on the other hand, it's, 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 it's a decompressor. It, it, it takes your mind off the rest of the world. You know, we, and, and in the uh, uh, high-stress environment that any surgeon works in, uh, we do need to decompress. Um, uh, whether it's at a, an hour at a time with with um, with uh, World of Warcraft, or because you're off this weekend, you know, and you've got your bicycle club on 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 Sunday mornings, and you go biking for for you know 26 kilometers or whatever they do. It, it's very important uh, to keep that sanity. Um, it's difficult to maintain a serious hobby. Uh, through the formative years of uh, 35 to 55, because you're so busy becoming an expert at, at who you are, that um, that most of us jettison our uh, our personal hobbies um, uh, and struggle to maintain our family uh, commitments. Um, but my advice uh, uh, to, to uh, my my colleagues is that don't lose them entirely. Um, because they're very valuable to, to resurrect um, uh, in, in the, the next couple of decades when you've got a little more time and, and, and just, uh, you, you are who you are. And, uh, and they'll come in very handy because uh, when it's time to hang up uh, um, the uh, OR cap, uh, you need something else to do every day. And that, for me, as you know, that's music. Um, it's really neat because I thought I was an okay guitarist, but I'm starting to take lessons again, and I feel it, it, there's huge challenges, and I'm learning something every day, and I'm getting better at this, and 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 it's, so you need something that 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 does challenge you. Um, um, uh, that that would that would be my advice, and so if you can maintain some of that, um, um, then then that you, you, that will be valuable to return to. Uh, uh, when it comes to, 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 to uh, uh, retirement times, um, just parenthetically, I'm not playing quite so much World of Warcraft, and the new the new um, uh, version is going to come out in, in a couple months' time. I'll probably sign up for it and pick my warrior up to 120. But but that it, it, it seems to have lost its luster, perhaps because my sons have stopped. <laughs> That's fantastic. Dr. Craig, the last question we want to ask you, and maybe it's the most important question, I, I, I don't know, but, um, and, and you might agree or disagree with, with, my, with my subsequent statement here, but I think as, as surgeons, uh, we see lots of examples um, of, of retiring poorly, and, and by that I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but just in terms of challenges, um, personal challenges, moving on to the next chapter, um, in the post-surgical life, and it appears from the outside anyway, and in, in talking to you a lot about it, that you've done that with elegance and grace and, and deep thought, uh, as usual. So I, I was curious how you viewed that and how you did that and, and what you would tell um, any of us that are, you know, 10 or 20 or maybe even 30 years out from, from that time point. But what, what advice would you have, and, and how do you think about that? I'm going to start before retirement. I'm going to start... Uh, around 60. And I think it's very important uh, that um, an individual be sufficiently self-aware because we change. Um, um, I have a naive enthusiasm for life and excitement and I go too fast and all that business. That was my nature. 
And we change with time. We become more cautious. We worry more. Yeah, we can, we can hide the tremor. The tremor I can control in the operating room. Um, but we don't look forward to having to resect the portal vein the way we used to. Ah, oh, it's a portal vein case. I didn't really want to. Okay, I'll tell you about the portal vein today. Life changes, and you have to be aware of that. And we become more cautious. And because we take our complications much more seriously, oh, we should have done that differently. I think that's human nature. And, and I saw a number of senior surgeons who, who had lost it, and I was embarrassed for them. And I was very aware of that in myself. I could, I could see that in myself, that I was um, uh, much more cautious. And before I made a decision, oh, I'm respectable. I better make sure I'm not wishing out on this because I don't want to deny someone an opportunity, you know. And in the operating room, the same sort of thing. And I would call my, my colleagues. Um, but we do change. And I think you have to be aware of that. And some of us change sooner than others. And you need to have that self-awareness and know when it's time. Number two, obviously, you have to have the financial resources in place. And, and, and when I checked with my financial advisor, and when I sat down with, with her, it was pretty clear to me that I had more money than time than any more was just greed or more for the kids when I die, and it's time to move on. And so you work towards that. And so you develop a goal, which I developed a goal and all that, and you have to have the, the, the succession stuff in line and all that, people who replace what you're doing and all that. But then in planning, in pl- I, I remember, I, I have a number of friends who are my age and who retired, I used to say to them, well, what do you do all day? You actually do. You know, oh, Paul, you'd be surprised how busy you get when you're retired. Yeah, but what do you do all day? I mean, oh, they give me these mercy answers. And you read a little bit here and there, and you talk with people and stuff, and advice is free. But I, mean, I, I sort of like this, this advice I got that, that, that suggested you should have at least three things that you're working on, and one of them should be physical because we sort of start to lose it. And so I've got three things, you know, and, and um, uh, that, that, that have enough of a challenge that when you get up in the morning, there's something you've got to do. That's what you want to do when you're less at the back and call, and you're not going to get called at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm not chronically exhausted. It's quite extraordinary how, how, how exhausted one really was, and you didn't realize it, you know. But um, my, the, 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 the advice I got to have three things uh, that you're well, separate from the, the house obligations, because the house can eat you a lot. There's always stuff to do in the house. There's always work to do in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to have things to do, you know. And so as you've learned, um, our music is my number one thing. I've got uh, uh, two bands. and work with another guy taking lessons and recording. Um, and that's coming on pretty well. We're starting to gig. Um, I'm, I'm training to do some, some more mountain hiking because I love being high in the mountains. And um, I look forward to doing more in the Canadian Rockies uh, once I get this other thing under my belt. And I got a project with my brother, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And at the end of it, I'll have a summer car. And I'm just chatting with him today about what we'll do next, you know. So, so that, that would be my advice. Be introspective. Know when it's time. And put a good couple of years planning to it. Because it's pretty easy 
to wake up in the morning and have another drink because uh, it tasted pretty good. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.